Good morning. It's always surprising to turn your back on the room and then stand up here and find out that now there's a lot of people in the room. I don't know why I would expect different. Um, Happy to preach again. And uh, those of you who have been here before when I've preached, when it hasn't been, uh, you know, a Christmas or Advent service, you know that I've been preaching through the same passage um, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and we're going to do that again for the last time. In that passage, you'll see as as I read it in a moment, we can detect very easily five basic Christian disciplines. The spiritual disciplines of attention to Scripture, devotion to prayer, worship, fellowship, and giving. And today I'm going to speak on giving. The church budget is fine. Um, This wasn't a hastily cobbled together message so that we can pay the water bill. It's nice that it comes in the flow of teaching on other spiritual disciplines because oftentimes it's hard to preach on giving. It's a very easy subject. It's biblically clear. But for the pastor, it's, it's kind of like when you heard the mousetrap go snap, and now you know you have to go over there and you have to get that thing out of the mousetrap and it's got to be done. And hold it at arm's length until you get to the trash can, and then you did it. Okay, that's, for many pastors, that's what preaching on giving is like. I'd like to make it a little more of a celebration. Let's read together Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they, that is the, the newborn church, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles. Now all these believers were together, and uh, and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them, added to them those who were being saved. What a wonderful picture of the brand new church. After Peter preached his first message, the the one we're very familiar with from Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. Luke records, this is how they behaved. Now, he must be finding distinctives in there that set them apart from the rest of the culture, things that they did that perhaps they weren't doing before. And you see this sense of a community together. Now, each of our previous investigations on these disciplines 
we noted two things in common. One, that the church today often has a distorted view of what these Christian disciplines represent. Sometimes treating Scripture as sage advice when we need advice, rather than the sovereign command of the living God. Trading down prayer to a last-ditch attempt to get what we want when all other avenues have failed. Shrinking the role of worship down to music alone, and beyond that, to a particular kind of music that suits us. Watering down fellowship to mean nothing more than potlucks and golf outings. Uh, By the way, men, there is a golf outing coming up in May that I want to talk to you about at another time, okay? But instead of that, fellowship is the intentional investment in in particular long-term spiritual growth relationships, intentionally investing your life into the life of another person as you both grow in the Lord. And so what can I say about giving? What are the common mistaken attitudes toward giving in the church today? Well, I got to tell you folks, they're not new. A distorted view of giving to the work of the Lord, giving to the church, was one of the things that sparked the Reformation 500 years ago when giving to the Lord had been converted into paying to have sins forgiven. One of the main complaints that people outside the church have as they view the church is that the church must ask for money to function, which seems contrary to the Lord saying, no, I'll build my church. Um, Some people see it as a a means by which we can influence or otherwise control the spiritual or theological direction of the church. Um, Voting with your wallet. An investment that made over time will reap higher membership standing in the church. I'm always saddened, and it's been rare, the occasions where a person's only sense of how they were faithfully connected to the church, what their faith was grounded on, was I have been giving to this church for 30 years. And last, an obligation to pay for services. These are all distorted views of what the Bible teaches about giving and why we must sweep away these distortions and and bend ourselves toward the biblical view is frankly because the biblical view brings joy and fulfillment. It's the discipline that Christ wants to grow his children in, not the burden that he wants to place upon his congregations. The second general distortion of the spiritual disciplines is that they're a means to influence God's opinion about us or to obtain a greater righteousness than others, to move on to super-Christianity, if you will. No, every spiritual discipline is given for our fulfillment and joy and his glory. And giving is no different. They are, every one of these disciplines, given to bring us joy and fulfilled lives today and forever, 
to grow us individually into the full stature of the likeness of Christ and to deepen genuine community among believers. This is why we must not shrink back from these five disciplines. And the presence of these distinctive spiritual disciplines were characteristics observed by Luke about the early church and documented for us to, to, uh, to study and regard. What Luke observed about giving, we see in the, in the middle of the passage that I read, that now all the believers were together and that they held all things in common. They sold possessions and they shared with anyone according to their need. Scripture here means to say that this was the result of Christ in them and the unity of the Holy Spirit in the church. Apart from this, all of these behaviors quickly become examples of the fallen sinful nature we share, rather than the testimony to our redemption. Now there's another passage, and, and I'm going to, as I go through these four things that they were together, they held all things in common. They sold their possessions, and they shared to anyone according to their need. Just two chapters over in Luke, he repeats these four distinctives about giving as, as he shares another story about giving, a familiar story about Barnabas giving generously and, and, um, and joyfully, and Ananias and Sapphira giving legalistically and dishonestly. So first, Luke reiterates what he sees as distinctive about the generosity and the giving nature of the newborn church. That's in Acts 4, 32 through 35. And I'm going to lead off each of these observations as we go down with a passage from Luke 4. Starting with, they were together. Interesting that in both of his observations, when he starts talking about giving, the first thing he said was, they were all together. It's not an individual effort or position. In Acts 4.32, Luke says, Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. This is a great key to a healthy church. It's also a primary expression of Christ in you. The unity of the church is far too often, we would just settle for if folks would stop fighting and call that unity. But what does unity have to do with giving? Well, it's the mindset that we're together in this. It's pretty clear that Luke leads this argument about giving and generosity among Christians twice with observations about unity because it's a requirement of being able to give and, and give in a godly way. In Galatians 6.2, we are commanded to bear one another's burdens 
Now, this is a familiar verse, but I would like to clarify what we mean when we say bear one another's burdens. Um, If my friend and and my neighbor Don is moving a couch, and, and he's lifting up the couch, for me to stand along and encourage him, go, Don, go, I'm, I'm not bearing the burden. I could send him a card. Um, I could pray for strength for Don. Or I could pick up the other end of the sofa and actually bear the burden. If you are bearing another's burden, you're carrying some weight. It's costing you something. To bear someone's financial burden means to give up your stuff and not necessarily surplus stuff. To bear the burden of loneliness means spending meaningful time, not necessarily spare time from your day. Bearing someone's burden of shame means sharing from the storehouse of grace that we have in Christ for restoration and not just pointing out wrong or mistakes. Bearing another's burden inherently means being together. And so we see that the newborn church lived with the expectation that they belonged to one another. They were responsible for each other, and this was a natural lead-in to believing that they owned everything together because they believed that they were part of one another. The second example, it needs a little bit of a, a little bit of an illustration because poor knowledge of God leads to poor theology. In fact, that's what poor theology means, is poor knowledge of God. God can't give anything away. He can't. Now, the following illustration requires um, a historical perspective um, on something called folding money. Okay, some of you younger folks, if you don't understand what I mean by paper or folding money, just ask somebody over 50, okay, and they'll explain. But we used to have this thing called folding money, and you would put it in your pocket or put it in your wallet. It wasn't a card. It wasn't made of plastic. But if I put a dollar in my wallet... The dollar, in my, the dollar in my wallet does not now belong to my wallet. Is that right? Okay. So I put a dollar in my wallet, and that's because the wallet belongs to me. Okay. Well, because I own my wallet, putting money in it doesn't transfer ownership. What it does is it transfers stewardship. You see... I put the money in the wallet to hold it, to keep it neat, and and to protect it from the weather, and to save it there until I'm ready to spend it on something. 
Now, if I was to find out that my wallet was spending money on things I didn't approve of, I'm going to keep my money somewhere else. Okay. God created everything from nothing by the power of his word. He sustains all things right now. Our lives are sustained by an almighty God in this very moment. And apart from him, nothing exists. These are truths. These are not metaphors. So out of all those created things, which ones are now in your control and not his? Which items of creation, including wealth and value and your body and his resources, which it runs on, which of those do you own and God does not? See, God can't give anything away. He can't even give you away. You belong to him because he made you. We belong to one another because he made us. It's so easy to see that people who believe they are God's owned people naturally believe that their things are not their own. This is not next-level Christianity or next-level Christian faith. By virtue of what Scripture is telling us here about the newborn church, this is entry-level Christian faith. So in the light of the truth of Scripture, I'm asking us all to consider Christ's ownership of us rather than a false theology of the ownership of wealth. We are stewards of God's creation in all its forms. So then they held all things in common, Luke tells us. Now the large group of those who believed, they were of one heart and mind. And then in in chapter 4, he says, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. Now, when this sort of thing is attempted apart from Christ and the unity of the Holy Spirit, it becomes something pitifully weak at best and truly evil at worst. When it's forced by guilt or law, it becomes truly destructive. I have heard these passages used to declare communism and socialism compatible with Christianity. Nothing could be further from the truth. Even capitalism is a victim at times of the corruption of sin and death. These verses describe God's economy, not man's. In Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, um, Paul uses a, a very interesting Greek term, oiko, I'm going to pronounce Greek here, so careful. Have your finger on the mute button, uh, Gavin. Oikonomia. Oikonomia. And that's where we get our word economics, our English word economics. The word means house rules or house management. When Paul refers to God's economy, he's telling 
Timothy to make sure that the church operates on God's house rules. No other economy is meant to rule God's people, regardless of the economic structure they might find themselves living under. And remember that the church has thrived and is thriving in all of these different economic models, in, frankly, often in spite of them. God calls also those of great wealth and those of little means without respect to their righteousness or goodness, but for the purpose of his glory and for the majesty of his kingdom. So whether you have a little or whether you have a lot, it's by the grace of God. Now I have a little note, a little symbol in my notes that says, let that hang in the air for a minute. Do you feel the cultural contradiction? Whether you have much or whether you have little, it is God's responsibility or it has been God's grace that has brought that to be so. That is counterculture almost everywhere. In a long list of things that God is telling his people, telling the people of Israel before they go into the promised land, we read in Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, that God declares, you may say to yourself, my power and my ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord gives you the ability to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant with you. They held things in common does not mean the redistribution of wealth. It does not mean taxing the rich and bringing about income equality. No, in fact, Scripture teaches that God has given income inequality as an opportunity and a blessing to both the one who gives and the one who receives. How we respond with generosity to the Christ-centered view that we all belong to Christ and to each other is at the core of the transformational quality of the spiritual discipline of giving. He gave us inequality to grow us into community. They sold their possessions. A little deeper in the Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, Luke writes, For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. There's a whole lot here. This statement, they sold possessions, can reference simply income. You sell things and, and you use the income to live off of. It can also be referring to sacrificial giving and perhaps referring to a person reevaluating their standard of living in the light of biblical truth and the needs of others. 
Clearly, not all of the owned houses were sold or the church would have been homeless. And we note that later in the passage, they were meeting from house to house. So these must have been other than primary residence homes. Now Barnabas was an example of this behavior. He sold a field and he gave the apostles the money to distribute to those who had need. He must have concluded that holding on to the property, to a field, while others had needs, was something that he was unwilling to do. At the same time, Ananias and Sapphira were an example of a sin-driven act of generosity. They sold a piece of property, and for some reason they lied about the price that they got for it, and they kept some of it back. It was a very twisted little thing. And you remember, Peter told Ananias when he confronted him, wasn't the property yours to do with as you wished? Wasn't the money yours to keep? There was no obligation. There was no burden upon Ananias or his wife to give half or to give all. No, the the problem was they wanted to lie about it. It wasn't that they missed out or that they ran afoul of an obligation to give. They let sin make their decisions for them. Now today, our economic transactions are pretty different from the first century. But what is the same is that giving is not compulsory. Yeah, I said that right. I said that right. Nothing in the New Testament requires a certain level of giving or defined requirement. Now, because we're talking about these five basic spiritual disciplines, it becomes very clear when I say that there is no commanded amount that we are to pray or to worship or to fellowship or to read Scripture. Have you ever been told to tithe prayer? No, there's no given percentage. It's just not there. Freely giving ourselves over to these life-giving disciplines. Freely giving yourself to prayer. Freely going to Scripture to be built up and encouraged and refreshed and washed by the Word of God. That's your joy to be able to do. And God has provided you the Scriptures. He has provided them in your language. He has provided that you are a literate person. These are not blessings that everyone in our world has today. We have. And we can avail ourselves of these blessings to our own joy, fulfillment, and community. Giving is a blessing given to us for our joy and our growth. Now, don't get me wrong, money obtained through guilt or inappropriate manipulation will still spend. It it still mechanically works the same way. 
It just won't benefit the giver or the receiver as it could. The freedom to give generously in Christ, to become like Christ, is a mark of one who confidently knows that they belong to Christ. Finally, they shared with anyone according to their need. The gifts that the apostles brought were distributed for basic needs. As we observe in other passages, uh, there was still disparity of wealth among the community of the newborn church. For one, they didn't have a building like the building that we're in today. The church met in homes, and it gathered for worship in the temple. So people needed to have homes uh, with space to accommodate the meetings and the worship. This kind of sharing was another expression of Christ-centered generosity. People who had means recognized that they could avail those to the church to help the church to grow. In light of... um, Oh, and and, um, widows and orphans were... They were often without means to supply their own basic needs. They were mainly the focus of these gifts. And in light of the Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy 8 passage that I just read, where I assured you that whatever level of wealth or affluence you have is by the grace of God, we do have to accept that the negative is true. So if I read that passage in the negative, you may say to yourself, my power and my own ability to gain wealth is gone. But remember, the Lord says, that the Lord gives you a community in Christ to meet your needs in order to confirm his covenant with you. The Lord gives need to some and supply to others so that we can be of one heart and one mind living for Christ as a testimony to the transformational saving power of the gospel. Giving, whether we give to support a pastor, a church community, um, the, the needs of those who have basic needs in our fellowship, is an opportunity for us to grow in Christ. If we ever, and in so much as we treat it as an obligation or a burden, we will miss that fulfilling blessing. So I urge you to understand what the Bible teaches about giving. And in that urging, I'd like to do a, a weird application. But anybody who's been in an ABF class with me knows that I love to assign homework. So for an application, I'm going to assign homework. Now, if you didn't bring a pen and a piece of paper, that's okay, because Kramer's going to put this on YouTube, so you can always go home and get a piece of paper and write down the homework assignment. I'm assigning two two pretty good-sized passages. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20, And 2 Corinthians 8, 
verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 15. That's your homework. Read these passages. They are talking, there is Paul encouraging two different churches about the truth about Christian giving, what they should think and how they should think about giving and generosity. And these two churches, though he's talking about almost this very same time frame, they have two very different concerns that he's addressing. So you get a very well-rounded education on what the Bible teaches, what the Holy Spirit chose to tell us about generosity and giving. What it means to give according to God's house rules. And what the giver and the receiver should expect from the discipline of giving. Now, this is an opportunity to regard, as we bring to a close, I have no idea what I'll preach on next time if I'm asked again, because I've come to the end of these five disciplines. But take this homework and imagine, this is an opportunity to regard the Scriptures with care, to pray to the Holy Spirit to give you clarity and wisdom as you study to gratefully acknowledge the God who calls you his beloved and his own. And to do all these things with another believer and pray for each other? Scripture, prayer, worship, fellowship, as you study the topic of giving. This is my application for you. You have until next Sunday, and I won't collect the homework. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please praise you and bless you. Your majesty, your wisdom is beyond our comprehension. And in that, Lord, it means you bring us to the very boundaries of what we can conceive of. And we still see your grace going on beyond that. That you would choose a means to make us understand and experience that you own us, you desire us, you call us your beloved, and that you give us to one another. Lord, that you give us the opportunity to need and to meet needs so that we would be knit together as your community of people. Lord, you give us all these things and then you give us yourself in the Holy Spirit to dwell within and teach us to walk in them. Lord, may we take these lessons and disciplines seriously and repeatedly return to them and grow to reflect not just your house rules, but the family resemblance of the family of God. That we would be your people and that you would be glorified in your church. Amen.